0: Hi, my name is Jana Metzger. Welcome to The Gospel House. Our mission here at The Gospel House is to show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough, that in the gospel, we can find all of our deepest needs met as the entire church responds to and applies the implications of the gospel. We would love to show it with you. Check out our website, www.thegospel.house, where you can learn more about us, find out how to connect with us, ask questions, see when and where our next meeting is, and give to help advance the gospel message of Jesus Christ.
1: Happy Thanksgiving. Like we said, we are officially past Thanksgiving, but we got one more week of being thankful. Right? (laughs) We all know that that's false, right? Last week, we started uh, the end of this by talking about contentment. Uh, contentment really is the key to unlocking thankfulness. And when we talk about grateful praise, having a heart full of grateful praise to the Lord, lots of times what we talked about in the first two weeks, it can be difficult because our problem is we're not content. Our problem is we look at what everyone else has. We compare ourselves to everyone else, especially in our culture today. That's, That's kind of the whole thing with social media, right? is it gives you a way to compare yourself to everybody else. Well, what's everybody else got? What's everybody else making? And so we do that, and when we do that, we can't be thankful for the things that we have. We can't be content with where God's placed us. Now, last week, we kicked off the real heavy hitter, the fun one, right? Being thankful, being content in our suffering. That's hard to do. But today, we're going to talk about the opposite side of that coin which for as much as we don't like the idea of being thankful in our suffering we actually find that this one the one we'll talk about today is a much bigger trap for us as believers so we'll start with Philippians 4 this is the passage that we talked about last week the oft misrepresented Philippians 4:13 I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me here's a little context Paul says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked an opportunity to act. Not that I speak from need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with little, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my difficulty. So since last week, we focused on the secret of getting along with little, the secret of going hungry, the secret of suffering need, Today, we turn our attention to the second half, the much more cheerful half, right? And talk about how do we as believers show contentment in plenty? How do we show contentment when we do have enough, when we have more than enough? But, that should be easy, right? But, if you've been around here long enough, You know I'm not going to let you off the hook that easy, right? We can't just have an easy-going, chill, yay, look at us message here at the Gospel House. We need a little Gospel hammer that's going to smack us down to where we belong, right? So, y'all ready for a little Holy Spirit conviction? Woo! Yay! Everybody's so excited. So today, as we count our blessings, which we should do, we're going to look at these three things. First, we're going to look at the trap of prosperity. This is the trap that if we are not careful, we will fall into when God causes us to prosper. Then we'll look at the privilege that comes from being sojourners here on this earth. And we'll talk about what sojourners means, since that's a big word that nobody actually knows. And finally, if we get those things right, if we get contentment right... The proof, as they say, is in the pudding. And there is a very specific kind of proof that you will see in your life if you are content. So first up, the trap of prosperity. There is a trap in prosperity, in having plenty. And if we aren't aware of this trap, it is spiritually deadly. This is why Jesus warns us about wealth, right? This is why the New Testament writers warn us about wealth. Solomon, in the book of Proverbs, warns of wealth. The psalmists warn of wealth. It is all over the Bible. But I particularly like this passage found in Deuteronomy that says this, Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God by failing to keep his commandments, his ordinances, and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, and you build good houses and live in them, and when your herds and your flocks increase, and your silver and gold increase, and everything you have increases, then your heart will become proud. And you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He who led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and its thirsty ground where there was no water. He who brought water for you out of the rock of Flint in the wilderness, it was he who fed you manna which your fathers did not know in order to humble you and in order to put you to the test to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, My power and my strength of my hand made this wealth. But you are to remember the Lord your God, for it is He who is giving you power to make wealth in order to confirm His covenant, which He swore to your fathers, as it is this day. Almost a year ago, here at the Gospel House, we went through the book of James. Some of you are still feeling the sting of that series, right? That was a hard one. But all throughout the book of James, we get this warning. All through the Gospels, Jesus gives this warning. Be careful, those of you who are wealthy, because this is the trap, y'all. And I have to be honest, we're all proud to be Americans, right? But guys, when we look at the American dream, what does the American dream say? If you work hard enough, you can get there. Is that what the gospel says, though? Now, look, that doesn't mean the gospel's not for freeloaders, right? Kind of. I mean, it kind of is when you look at what Jesus did for us, right? But but that doesn't mean, well, okay, sit back on the couch and let the government pay for my... That's not what the gospel says either, right? Work heartily as unto the Lord, right? We're supposed to work for the Lord. God tells us that from Genesis all the way to Revelation. It's a consistent theme. Work for the Lord. But we've got to recognize there is no pull yourself up by your bootstraps in the gospel. There is no, if you work your hardest, you can get there. Guys, we've got to do a better job of this as as Christians in general, of looking at what culture says, and instead of just accepting these things like the American dream, Looking at it, at it and seeing, okay, now where does this contradict the gospel? And then do we choose culture or the gospel? We know what that answer is. We know what we're supposed to do, but do we do it? Because the reality is most of us don't check these things, right? We listen to them and, and we hear these things and we just accept them blindly. But we've got to run everything through the gospel. Here's the reality. Wealth is not inherently evil. There's a passage from 1 Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.10. 1 Timothy 6.10 does not say money is the root of all evil. That's not what it says, y'all. It says the love of money is the roots of all sorts of evil things. But it's not money that's inherently wrong. It's how we prioritize money. And y'all... Open your eyes. You will get sucked in. I I promise you, if if I sat y'all down one-on-one and had a conversation where we're just being brutally honest with one another, and I asked, hey, have you got sucked into that trap? Every single one of us has, haven't we? Every single one of us. It is so easy to get sucked into that trap. But this is a trap, y'all, from the enemy. And we need to open our eyes When things go well for us, when life is good, when there's food on the table and the sun is shining. Now, one would think that it's in those moments that we praise God the most, right? That we say, oh God, look at all these great things that I have. Look at everything. And sometimes it's true, but we've got to be careful because lots of times y'all praise from the mountaintop when you're on top of the world and everything's great, praise on the mountaintop can be extremely shallow. Can't it? Does anybody have children? You make your children say their dinnertime prayers? Praise from the mountaintop when you've got a plate full of food can be extremely shallow. Anybody during Thanksgiving have those prayers? Because you're just trying to get through them as fast as you can so you can eat, right? Because you got to f- plate full of food, and you want to get at it. But when you're in the valley, and when you're suffering, when you don't have, and the little that you get, it is oddly so much easier to be thankful for the little that you have. Praise in the valley, we don't like this, it doesn't make sense, right? But guys, this is the backwards kingdom that God continually talks about. Praise from the valley can be so much deeper because you actually have a thankful heart, whereas praise on the mountaintop is shallow. It shouldn't be that way, but it is. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller he makes this point in a sermon. It's actually not on this, but the illustration is good either way. He uses it uh, when he's he's talking about uh, what oh he's talking about pride, but but it fits here. How many of you, when you woke up this morning, thanked God for your toes? Anyone? No hands. For those of you watching online at home, there are no hands raised. No one has thanked God for their toes. Why? Because they don't hurt, right? But I would venture to guess that if you had just done a procedure, had a procedure done on your toes, if you had just gone through something, you know, s- brutally stubbed your toe on a coffee table. And had to have surgery and had to reset and everything and you woke up today and your toe is finally feeling good. you would thank God for your toes wouldn't you now Keller makes the point that nobody notices their pride until it's hurt right it's a very good very good illustration but the same thing goes here y'all the our problem is we fail to thank God for the things that we're numb to right now Metzger family, we're praising God because our tummies don't hurt. (laughs) Because we just spent all of Thanksgiving with the flu, right? But but it's in that, when, when you have that sickness, it makes you appreciate health, right? That's why the valley, it's so much easier to praise, even though it doesn't make sense. Because you realize what you don't have. And so you're thankful for what you do have. So y'all, when we get to these mountaintop experiences, we cannot forget God. That's the trap. When we prosper, when things are great, it is lovely to think that we would praise God for all of it. But the trap is just like those, the parable of the landowners, or the, I'm sorry, the workers in the, in the field that Jesus gave us, right? They are so busy looking at what everyone else is getting, that they're not thankful for what they get. And so they complain, and they gripe, right? Because we think to ourselves, I've earned this. This is my right. We've worked for it. We've earned it. It's mine, my own, my precious, for you Lord of the Rings fans out there, right? Right? This is the biggest trap in prosperity. Is that we own anything? Is that these things that God has blessed us with are somehow ours to possess? Because y'all, we don't think it. If if we again, if we did the brutally honest survey, completely anonymous, not a single person would count this as a blessing. But there is a privilege to being a sojourner. A sojourner is literally a temporary resident. That's what that word means. Fancy way to say. And y'all, all all through the Bible, this idea, this concept of us, Christ followers, disciples, people who follow the one true God, over and over again, there is a theme in the Bible that we are called to be sojourners. Temporary residents of this earth there is a blessing in this y'all now I, the holy spirit gave me this this illustration while i was preparing this sermon and this i, I you know it happened it's not mine it's it's his it's 100 percent came from him but this is one of my favorite illustrations that he ever gave me i love this illustration but how many of you have stayed in an airbnb anybody how many of you stayed in a hotel almost everybody right okay so how many of you, while staying in this Airbnb or hotel, drove to your local, to whatever the local Hobby Lobby in Florida, and purchased a nice, expensive Hobby Lobby sign to hang on the wall of your hotel room or your Airbnb? No one? Why? Because it's not yours. Right? You're a sojourner. You're a temporary Resident, why in the world would you spend money buying something for a hotel room that you're not going to be in in three days? You wouldn't, right? So why do we spend so much of our life, of our time and our effort, building palaces on this earth where we're going to spend 70 years? We are just passing through. God asks us the same question. Why are you spending your life fixing up this home? Now listen, I'm not advocating that you let your home fall to pot, right? I'm not advocating if the heat goes out in your house that you, well, my home's in heaven. I'm going to let that go, right? Fix your roof. If it's leaking, fix it, right? If the plumbing doesn't work, fix it. You'll make your wife happy if nothing else, And if you don't have a wife, you'll make everybody else who's there happy, even if it's just yourself. But we spend so much of our life building up temporary kingdoms that at the end are all going to pass away. You know, there's this Old Testament principle, and we've lost it, y'all. We have completely lost lost it. But look, this is from our favorite book, the book of Leviticus. We've talked about Leviticus a lot, haven't we? Maybe we should do our next sermon series on Leviticus. That'll be, we'll get people pouring in off the streets for that one. But look at what it says in Leviticus 25. The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, because the land is mine. For you are only strangers, and residence with me. That residence, the, the Hebrew word there is, is sojourners. That's that sojourner. This is that passage in Leviticus where God's going through all the sabbatical, sabbatical laws and, and the, the year of Jubilee and all of that stuff. Every seven years, farmers who harvested their fields were supposed to give their field a year of complete rest. Where they do not harvest, they do not plant, they let their fields go for an entire year, every seven years. That was the Sabbath for those fields, right? And then for the year of Jubilee, every 50 years, all of the land that was sold reverted back to its original owner. Because God was giving us a principle you don't own anything, it's mine. You are borrowing it. Now look, I've heard the year of Jubilee preached a lot, right? People love that. Look, it's, it's a cool concept, right? Especially when we go through and talk about how it points to Jesus, the gospel implications, even, even with the Sabbath for the fields and all that stuff. The, the gospel implications of these things are incredible. But look, here's the reality. Every time, you know, there's a new, not new anymore, it's a couple years, but Maverick City has a song about the year of Jubilee, Right? It's a year of jubilee all the people are being set free and you don't have to pay your debts and you're you know and we love it when we're the one who's forgiven right but the year of jubilee is not so awesome for the person who bought the field because now I've got to give it back oh hold on a minute and now granted you know God gives the Jewish people laws to say, you know, if there's only a year left until the jubilee, you don't pay full price for the for the field, right? And so he gives he tells them to establish those things, but still well, I kind of liked that property. I kind of liked the view that I had out my window. It doesn't matter because it's not yours. We have lost sight of this completely, y'all especially in our society today with capitalism and, and, you know, we own everything and we have our rights and these are our things. And I'm not saying that any of this stuff is wrong. Again, it's not inherently evil. But do we let our hearts get too attached to these things? This was the whole point of the parable that we started this sermon series with. God's generosity is awesome when you're the one who only worked an hour and you got paid the same as those who worked 12 hours. Right? But if you worked 12 hours and you're getting paid the same as the person who worked one, again, if you deserve it, if this is something that's owed to you, then it's really difficult to be thankful for that, isn't it? But what if God says, you don't own any of it? You don't earn any of it. It's all mine. And I'm giving it to you. Then all of a sudden, no matter what you get, it's a whole lot easier to be thankful for, isn't it? This is the privilege of being strangers, of being sojourners. The earth, y'all, is your Airbnb, right? Are you buying Hobby Lobby signs for somewhere that you're only going to be staying for a breath? Now, here's the deal. The hotel is a blessing when something breaks, right? Because if the hot water goes out in the hotel, guess who doesn't have to fix it? me, right? And y'all, if I look around this world, it's pretty broken, isn't it? But that brokenness is a blessing because this isn't our home and it's not our job to fix it, right? God is going to fix it. God is going to restore it. We just have to be obedient. But we cannot get caught up in this game of coveting what everyone else has, this game of possessing and owning, this isn't our home. And so we've got to anchor ourselves where our real home is, the home where we will no longer be foreigners, where we will no longer be temporary residents, Because y'all, when we all get called up to be with Jesus and join him in heaven, we will finally be home. And the more you can see that now, the more blessed your life is going to be. And when we get that right, we will find that there is proof of our contentment. When our hearts are anchored in God, when we are living for eternity with Him and not for this world, when we see that this world is just a hotel that we are passing through, then we'll find the proof of our true hope. Jesus tells this story in Mark, and it shows us the proof of contentment. Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and began watching how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large amounts. And a poor widow came and put in two lepta coins, which amount to a quadrants. Now, a quadrants was one sixty-fourth of a denarius. To which everyone says so, right? A denarius was a day's wage for a skilled laborer. This woman put in one sixty-fourth. Of, her, of, of what would have been a person's paycheck. Right? One sixty-fourth. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. This is where everybody starts tearing papers and throwing things. You tricked us, Pastor! This is a giving sermon. It's been a giving sermon since the beginning, and churches aren't supposed to preach on giving. Right? Everybody always gets angry whenever you do a giving sermon. <laughs> I tricked you. <laughs> I snuck it in there so you didn't know it was going to be on giving. Y'all, this woman wasn't wealthy. Right? She literally had two coins to rub together. That was it. She didn't have much at all, but she was spiritually rich. She knew. She had an anchor that these Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and teachers of the law, they didn't have. This woman put these two coins in the offering to say, this is not my home. I am spending my time and my money and I am buying things for a place that belongs to me, a place that is my home. I'm not going to spend my money on things where I'm just a temporary resident. And that freed this woman to give everything she had that's a strange thought isn't it that it freed her to give everything she had that we are free to be generous now listen i know what the rule is right the unspoken rule the tithe you give 10 percent, and we love the tithe right because it tells us black and white exactly what we're supposed to give. But do you know why else we love the tithe? Because when the tithe says to give 10%, I only have to give 10%. God can never ask more of me. Uh Uh-oh. Right? Look, y'all, I tithe, I give 10%, and I'm going to be really honest with you. I like the tithe because I only have to give 10%. If God says, give 50%, Jeremy, I could say, uh, 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 uh. God, <laughs> I know McKezeldeck over here, <laughs> and I know I only have to give 10%. The other 90 is mine. False. False, false, false. Did you learn nothing from the first part of the sermon, Jeremy? Right? The other 90% is mine? False, right? We love this idea of the tithe, but again, is the tithe a gospel principle? Is 10%, is giving God 10% and nothing more, is that a gospel principle? One of my favorite passages on giving comes from 2 Corinthians 8. And I love, we're going to go through this, and I, but I want you to notice. Look, I, I've, I've been in the church world for a long time. I've heard a lot of giving sermons. I've, I've heard little mini sermons that people give right before the offering time in church every Sunday. Right? And I've heard a ton of stuff. But y'all, if your giving is not anchored in the gospel, you're not giving correctly. Can I just tell you that right now? If your giving is not rooted in gospel motivation, you're missing out. Not the church. We're not missing out. It's not me. Look, y'all, I am doing God's will here at the gospel house. I believe with all of my heart that we as a church, the gospel house church, we are doing God's will as the gospel house, which means God's going to take care of us. I don't care if every single one of you stops tithing. The board's going to get really mad that I just said that. (laughs) But I don't, because the reality for me is I am being obedient to God. He will take care of me. I know he will. He has never failed to show up. Y'all, do you know that in every church planter's manual, I, I read a lot of church planting. I went to church planting seminars before we planted this church and everything while we were going through it. Every single one of them, says that you need $10,000 to even think about starting a church. Do you know how much money we had when we started the Gospel House? Nothing. Nothing. And here we are. Right? Because of the generosity of our planting team, because of God's goodness. Right? We made it happen. God made it happen. He will always provide. Always. Always. If he has called you to it. So when we talk about, and you know, that's why I always get frustrated when people, oh, we don't, I don't like giving sermons. I don't like when the pastor gets up there and talks about giving. Pastors don't preach giving sermons for the pastor. Some might. But we do it for you. Because if you're not giving from the right heart, you're missing out. Not the church is missing out. You are. And so if you aren't anchored in the gospel when you give, you're missing out. Right? I'm not sitting up here twisting your arm. We're not going to have a pledge drive where I challenge you to give more than 10%. Or we're or not doing that junk today. But what I'm saying is, when you give, listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8. Now, brothers and sisters, we make known to you the grace of God which has been given... In the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability, and beyond their ability, they gave voluntarily. Look at the church in Macedonia. Just like the woman that Jesus pointed out. This is not a church that gave out of their surplus. This is not a church that said, well, after we paid our bills, after we made sure the electric was on and took care of the water and the heat and all that stuff, after now after all those bills are paid, now what do we have left over that we can give to Paul? It's not what it was. In the midst of incredible suffering and in the middle of their poverty, they overflowed. With generosity. They gave out of their poverty beyond their ability, trusting that God would take care of them. It continues in verse 4 begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. Look, not just that they gave, right? Paul, we are begging you. We know we don't have any money, but can we please give you what we have? They begged to participate in Paul's ministry. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, speaking, knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in the love we inspired in you, see that you also excel in this gracious work. I am not saying this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love as well. How do we prove the sincerity of our love? We grow in our generosity. Guys, just like every other spiritual principle, you want to grow in the amount of time you spend reading your word. You want to grow in the the quality and quantity of time that you spend praying to God. Paul says in the same way, we need to be growing in our generosity. And then here's, this is my favorite part. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. You see that gospel anchor there? Guys, when we give, this has to be our anchor that Jesus Christ was a king in heaven, the king in heaven rich beyond anything we could even comprehend. And he gave it all up to become poor. And why? To give us the opportunity to become sons and daughters of the Most High God. To have that same inheritance that he gave up. That's the gospel that should anchor our generosity and our giving I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage. Who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. But now finish doing it also, so that just as there was the willingness to desire it, so there may be also the completion of it by your ability. For if the willingness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For this is not for the relief of others and for your hardship, but by way of equality. At this present time, your abundance will serve as assistance for their need, so that their abundance also may serve as assistance for your need, so that there may be equality. As it is written, the one who had gathered much did not have too much, and the one who had gathered little did not have too little. And there is the contentment you see it? The one who gathered much did not have too much. The one who gathered little did not have too little. I'm going to wrap it up here. There's this Old Testament principle that is laid out in Leviticus. You can check it out on your own if you want. Chapter 19, verses 9 through 10. Again, back on the Leviticus train, right? But the principle is called gleaning. Some of you are familiar with it, but I would argue, and I am joined by some significant other company, I won't name drop, but some other big-name pastors out there, I've read the articles, so I'm stealing it from them. That's what I mean by I'm joined by them. Gleaning, not tithing, is a more appropriate way to give via the gospel to give with the implications of the gospel. Gleaning fits with what we just talked about, that passage that Paul ends with, the one who gathers did not have too much, did not have too little. That's that's talking about the Israelites. When they are in the desert and they're gathering the manna, God provides manna for them to to eat, right? That's the food that they ate while they were wandering in the desert. And, And when God provided it, when they went out and gathered, They gathered exactly enough for their family. The one who had a huge family, who needed a lot, didn't have too much. The one who didn't have a big family didn't mean much. They didn't have too little. They gathered exactly what they needed. And that's what gleaning says. Gleaning, from an agricultural standpoint, told the Israelites, "...harvest your crops." Go out into the field, harvest your crops, but do not maximize your profits. Right? They were not allowed to take the edges of the field. Now drive down the road here on Dowling Road. Farmers today don't do that, do they? You take every last bit that you can get off of that field because you need to maximize your profits, right? You are not a good businessman if you don't maximize your profits. But guys, gleaning was incredible because what happened is the farmers are told, don't don't take your harvest all the way out to the edges. You need to leave that for the poor and the marginalized. But then guess what the poor and marginalized had to do? They didn't sit at home and say, all right, pay me. All right, come on, come on, farmers. Come over here and give me what I mowed. They didn't say that. The Bible said, no, poor and marginalized, get off your tails and go into the fields and take what you need, right? Talk about an incredible welfare system, right? But it doesn't work if everyone is so obsessed with maximizing their profits taking everything they can, squeezing every last dime you can out of your workers, out of yourself, out of your systems, whatever it is, right? We're not, we're not all farmers now, so we've, we've got to draw this analogy outside of the farming world. But y'all, when you budget, when, when you spend, when you save, when you take care of your household budget, are you gleaning or are you tithing now look for some of you tithing is gleaning right you've you've got what you can live on and that 10% that's left over that's that's as high as it goes right but for others are you tithing or are you gleaning and contentment is the key to this because again i promise If I sat down with every single one of you one-on-one, actually, we can put a veil in between us. It'll be like the Catholic confessionals for those of you who grew up Catholic, right? You can't see the priest. They can't see you. And so you go in there and you, you tell them that you've sinned and everything stays in the booth, like nothing comes out of there, right? We'll do that. We'll do that. I'll buy the booth and everything. I'm just kidding. But if we did that in a moment of complete honesty, and I asked you, do you have enough? every single one of us would say no. Wouldn't we? Well, maybe some of you are better than me. I'm a horrible sinner, so I would say no. But guys, this is what we do, isn't it? I look at Elon Musk, the richest man in the world, Jeff Bezos, right? All these, all these guys that have helicopters and yachts, and I look at them and I say, well, I don't have that much, so I don't have too much, right? We always look at the person above us, don't we? It's that comparison. Comparison or contentment. It's interesting, though, because when it's suffering, we don't do that, do we? Very rarely do we look down and say, oh, well, actually, I don't have it as bad as that person. No, because that minimizes our suffering. Right? We cannot fall into this comparison trap because it crushes our contentment. We use comparison as a coping mechanism, right? They've got it so much better than me. They've got so much more than me. So it's okay if I do this. It's okay. Well, look at that person's business practices. He's all sorts of rotten and look at how, you know, he's it, their church is taking off over there. I'm just going to start doing some of those things, Right? And we play that comparison game. But what does the gospel say? How do you give for the gospel? Jesus gave everything so that you could become rich. God didn't give 10% of his son. Amen? God did not tithe Jesus' blood. He didn't say, I will cover 10% of your sins, but the 90%, you're on your own. Right? We'd be toast, right? God didn't even say, I'll cover 90% of your sins, and then you got to take care of 10. Jesus paid it all. You guys know the old song, right? We sing it at Easter. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. It wouldn't rhyme quite as well if we said Jesus paid his tithe. Right? Jesus paid the tithe. The tithe to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He kind of washed it a little bit. Right? It's not as, not as cheery on Easter. But y'all, this is where our contentment needs to come from. May our contentment be tied up in the gospel truth that Jesus Christ paid everything to secure for us an eternal home in heaven. And based on that reality, may the proof of our contentment overflow in grateful praise through our generosity. Amen? Amen
0: thank you for listening to the gospel house podcast we pray that you were pointed to jesus and will apply what you learned to look more like him each and every day if you found today's message impactful do us a favor and hit the follow button leave us a rating and write up a review to help others find our podcast you can also help us by sharing the podcast so that together we can show the world that the gospel of jesus christ is enough if you have any questions or comments we would love to hear from you Head to our website, www.thegospel.house slash connect. Fill out the form and someone from our Gospel House family will connect with you. God bless you and remember, the gospel of Jesus Christ is always enough.